Good day, America. Hello, world. Paul McLaughlin. McLaughlin at work, your audio guide to the workplace, the work walk. Great episode today. Earth, the sequel, the race to reinvent energy and stop global warming. My guest, Miriam Horn. And brought to you by Classroom 24-7. You can see their banner there on the base of our visual here on McLaughlin at Work. Classroom 24-7. You can click on it and go straight to their website. They provide innovative on-demand distributed education solutions designed specifically for institutions of higher learning, continuing education, and certification testing. Give them a click. Miriam Horn is the co-author with Fred Krupp. Fred Krupp is the president of the Environmental Defense Fund, something that I knew relatively little about until Miriam Horn, my guest, uh, alerted me to the fact that she and Fred were going to be on the Discovery Channel as they were um, in mid-March of 2009. Last night, to be specific, Earth, the sequel, the race to reinvent energy and stop global warming. My guest, Miriam Horn, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. We, uh, I comment to Miriam that she was done an injustice by some of the editors because she, the, um, the production value last night, I have two comments about it, and I want to segue into the topic by talking about the presentation because, after all, this is a different medium today than what you had last night. And one, and it goes a little bit to my bias, but uh, no, the second will be to my bias. The first was that um, they edited, uh, the good people there edited the story very, very nicely, but managed to clip out some of the people who were just talking. So it almost sounded like a, an abrupt soundbite. So I'm delighted to have some time with you today that will not be an abrupt soundbite. Thank you. The, the second was, and, and, and since I'm in the business, if you will, of narration and conversation and the like, I found that the tone of this piece, and this is not a negative, it's about the presentations, a little bit about Discovery Channel, a little bit about NPR, and a little bit about, uh, if you will, not-for-profit television, although Discovery isn't exactly that. And that is um, that the tone of it reminds me, as you and I are here in New York, a little bit like going up to the second floor at Fairway, the market, where they sell organic food. And it sort of smells different up there. It smells like organic food in the second floor of Fairway. And where I'm going with this is the tone is almost a, uh, a lecture tone about, um, about the environment and what we, what we collectively need to do. What I'd like you to take me back to, uh, Miriam Horn, the book Earth, the sequel, which came out as a hardcover with New York Times bestseller about a year ago. Softcover is out now, uh, more affordable and available, and I think you should buy it. it. It highlights the fact that there is a crisis. I want to get into the fact of the crisis, but it strikes me that the, the tone of what you discussed last night was that energy conservation or new ways of uh, new types of energy, how we employ it, all of those things in and of themselves are a good thing to do without the overlay of the fact that we have a crisis, even though we have a crisis, perhaps. And, and the whole issue of global warming seems to have developed a cult around it that allows people to take sides on it, whereas I thought, thought that everything that was discussed last night were naturally good things to do. Can you address that dichotomy for me? 
Well, I don't really see it as a dichotomy. I agree with you that there are more reasons than we can count, really, to move toward clean energy. One is the limits to fossil fuels that we're bumping up we're against out of. sooner or later. Right. Um, oil, probably sooner. Coal, later. Um, the, the second is the kind of foreign entanglements that we find ourselves in in defense of bringing, of importing those fossil fuels and the competition that we get in and the the price volatility that it, that is really hard on the economy at large and on individuals. So the one of the great benefits of moving toward renewable energy is you can make it all at home. And that means not only making the electricity, but also making all of the parts of the wind turbines that are themselves making the electricity and training all the people that you need to install the solar panels or to weatherize the homes. So the potential for energy security for greater uh, jobs and opportunity in the United States is huge. I also think that climate change is, is not anymore a, a debate. The scientific consensus on the human contribution to global warming is about as great a scientific consensus as it's certainly as large as the consensus on the theory of evolution, for instance. And the it is clear that the the digging up of the of this fossilized carbon, carbon that was put into underground millions of years ago, and there was and the Earth was in this beautiful carbon balance where carbon was released into the atmosphere at about the same pace that it was taken up by the biomass and the oceans. That we have radically disrupted that carbon balance and accelerated the uh, emissions of carbon into the atmosphere. And that as a consequence, we are, are quickly changing the Earth's climate into a climate that has never existed since humans have been humans. And that that's, that's really dangerous. So you, you move toward these clean energy sources and you get all the economic benefits and all the national, national security benefits and all the jobs benefits. And you also get the most critical benefit, which is a stabilized climate so that we're assured of a safe future. Very well put. Could you take, give us a little bit of the history of the EDF, the uh, Environmental Defense Fund, and the legislation sort of to bring us to the current sure. crises? Uh, Environmental Defense Fund just celebrated its 40th anniversary. It was founded like most of the big environmental groups in the late 60s and came out of the effort to uh, address water and air pollution. That was we. Our our particular founders were four scientists who got concerned about the effects of DDT on birds of prey, and there was evidence that the uh, DDT spraying that was very widespread at that point was thinning the eggshells of these birds of prey, and so they couldn't ever hatch their eggs. And was that in part? I'm remembering uh, not hardly an environmental scientist, but my mother. Uh, talking about Rachel Carson, the yes. Silent Spring. Is that exactly. about the same That's time? That's exactly the same time. Okay. Same family. Sort of a, sort of a classic Carson. of it was, its time. Yes. And so we brought one of the first ever lawsuits to stop that kind of air pollution, and it was successful. It, it led to a ban on the spraying of DDT in that, in that widespread fashion. That our scientists were actually those first four guys that founded EDF were they were out there climbing trees with little calipers to right. see what was going on uh -huh. with those eggs. They did good work. 
and sorry they did good work yes and so we started in the mold that became kind of the the classic mold for the 1970s environmental movement which was what Fred says calls sue the bastards that you basically <laughs> went out and find, right. found people doing bad things and you sued them until they stopped right and you tried to get laws passed under which you could sue them so sort of the beginning if you will of the commercial aspects if you sue if you hit people in their pocketbook, they will change their behavior. Well, yes, that's an interesting way to put it because in the 80s, we really changed course. Fred met an economist who remains our chief economist named Dan Dudek. Uh, he was brought in by another of our economists. We were, I think, the first environmental group to hire PhD economists. And Dan presented to Fred this idea that was in the economics literature about that if you could if you could price pollution and allow people to trade in pollution rights then you could get a market in pollution reductions that could be enormously effective and that the in, in a in a broader sense that if you could align market incentives with environmental outcomes, that that was going to be the most powerful engine you could use to change the environment. Mm -hmm. That people had to, the, the right thing to do had to also be the profitable thing to do. Because if you just spent all your time trying to push back against market forces, you were doomed to lose, or you were doomed to be reconciled to the margins because the, that capitalist engine is enormously powerful. And so you want it pulling for you, not working against you. And it's all about incentives. Markets are, most markets, I would venture to say every market is regulated in one degree or another. And how you regulate it determines who benefits. So Fred had had professors in college and in law school who had said to him, if you want to achieve an environmental outcome, think about who on the ground will benefit from that outcome, who can become your ally. So if you're concerned about a waterway and the pollution that is damaging the ecosystem, think about the fishermen that are making their livelihood on that waterway. They are your natural allies, and you need to partner with them to figure out ways to revive those fish populations for the sake of the planet at large and for the sake of those fishermen and their, and their ability to pay their mortgage and feed their children. It reminds me, if I can interject, that in the discussion that I had recently with Anil Gupta about getting India and China right, at the conclusion he, he made a similar observation is the way to understand India and China is to try and put yourself in the mindset and wearing the shoes of the Chinese and the India, as opposed to looking at them and understanding them, you turn around and, and think, try and understand how they think. And it's, it's, it's curious that in a matter of a week, that same notion right. revisited now as, as being sort of the, the point of the spear for understanding. Well, Fred actually wrote a piece that was in the Wall Street Journal in the mid-80s that posited a third wave of environmentalism. The first wave had been the sort of Teddy Roosevelt, John Muir, you know, put, put fences around these really special places mm -hmm. and protect them. The second wave had been this Rachel Carson, you know, concern about Love Canal on fire and trying to, to sue people to stop them from doing these nasty things. And Fred's proposition was that the third wave of environmentalism would recognize that virtually every environmental problem has underneath it 
real human needs that need to be met, people's ability to make a livelihood in the world. Right. And that you can't, it wasn't just enough to obstruct things, that you had to come up with creative solutions so that people could have, could, could survive. That the they virtual, could the virtual buy-in. Yes. So this, the idea of cap and trade was a great way to do that because if you, if you, if you figured out a way, you had to limit the amount of pollution that was out there. In the 80s, the concern was not global warming, it was acid rain. Acid right. rain was, was killing forests and it was killing lakes. And scientists had looked at it and had come up with a consensus about how much sulfur dioxide we could put in the atmosphere safely and still allow our lakes and our forests to come back to life. What, what was that piece of balance? How much you could allow of the bad stuff? If right. It, natural bad stuff. Right. But well, and, the, and sulfur dioxide comes primarily from the burning of coal. So it was a pretty simple problem. Okay. You had one source. You had smoke. You had smoke coming out <laughs> of those smokestacks. Yeah. How much sulfur dioxide could you allow to come out and still allow America's forests and lakes and rivers to be alive? Mm -hmm. And so... The, so there were two ways that you could go about achieving that limit. The old way, the way that we had always been pursuing as a country, was for the federal government to go out to each and every power plant and say, okay, this is what you have to do. You have to put this kind of filter on your smokestack. You have to spend this amount of money and put these kinds of filters on. And, and then they would go back home to Washington. Well, the problem was you often didn't get the results you wanted, but if that power plant did what they were told, they were considered in compliance, even if the pollution kept on pouring out there. Well, instead, if you went out to that power plant and said, okay, this is how much you're allowed to emit, you figure out the best way to hit that target. Right. And, let, and, and something else, if you actually beat your target, if you get below your target, you can sell that extra pollution to somebody else who hasn't beat their target. So not only do you take advantage of all the local expertise, all the people in that power plant who know it better than anybody, right. and mobilize all the capacity for innovation because people think, you know, I'm going to save money, I'm going to invent a better way, you create a whole marketplace in pollution reductions. You create a whole new commodity that people can trade. And the incentive to innovation was staggering. The so this now, in, in, in our historical timeline, this was the Clean Air Act of, of 1990. Yes. That was really the legislation that began this whole cap and trade. Yes. Because I must say that I must, have, I must have been dead in the dirty water. I, I never really focused on this whole cap and trade until it started coming up in the Obama administration. I mean, I, I'm not unusual, I guess, in that, but it was even a term given the financial meltdown, <laughs> I, somehow I thought it was in the financial markets, this cap and trade, but it, it became kind of a slang term. And it was only, frankly, in, in looking at the book and, and beginning to understand what cap and trade meant. Right. Is, well, that a, is that a general consensus or am I? Yes, am I no, no, you're absolutely. We have found it a tremendous challenge to help people understand what cap and trade is. There, in part because there was a lot of resistance from our environmental allies to it for a long time because right. they thought it was pay to pollute. That as long as you pay money, you can, right. you can trash the atmosphere. And that's not what it is at all. There's, an act, there's a cap. There is a limit beyond right. which you do not go, and that cap comes down over time. Yeah so that you squeeze pollution out of the atmosphere. Sulfur dioxide is now 
sulfur dioxide was quickly cut in half and is now going to be reduced another 70% to almost nothing. The, wow. the, the pace of innovation, the industry had screamed that it was going to you know, cost them a fortune, that it was going to drive the price of electricity up. In fact, it cost them far less than even we predicted right. because of the innovations that occurred. Yep. And the cost of electricity came down while they were cleaning up sulfur dioxide. So it, it really is about betting on American ingenuity and about betting on the profit incentive and how much it gets people going. Right. That once people have, I mean, the, Fred was at the White House with the uh, chairman of, I think it was PG&E at the time, who said to him, you know, when I first heard you talking about this, I thought you were nuts. Now all my guys are coming to me with ideas of how we can make more money by cutting more pollution and selling our unused pollution allowances to other companies. Right. So there were, it, it unleashed this incredible flood of innovation and really created a model that the next place it surfaced, and unless you were paying close attention to <laughs> global climate negotiations, you wouldn't have noticed. Okay, thank you very much. That's very nicely put, because I, I, I know I have not noticed. The next place it surfaced was in the Kyoto, in okay. the global climate negotiations. And we were instrumental, Environmental Defense Fund was instrumental in bringing this idea to the global negotiations. That, that Is that the one that we did not initially sign on to? The United States? Uh, we still have not ratified okay, it. Thank you. Um, so at least I know that much about yes. it. Yes. The interesting thing about it's it's referred to as the Kyoto Accords because they were signed in Kyoto. The interesting thing is that the U.S. was very insistent, drove the idea of using these market mechanisms as opposed to that old way I described people call command and control, mm -hmm. which is, you know, you the central government go out and say, you have to do these 15 things to reduce pollution. Right. There's none of that. It's All it is now is you have to meet this target. What we're interested in is the performance outcome. How you get there is up to your imagination. Sounds like Jack, Jack Welsh and GE. Well, I don't know that much about Jack Welsh and GE, <laughs> well, but... See, now that's the other, well, you know, it's sort of a performance mechanism, and, uh, you know, you, we give you a target and you expect to get there, and, and we're not going to tell you the steps to get there, but, and it may, and some of those may be a little bit higher, but if you don't aspire, then you're never even going to get uh, off the ground. Exactly the model, and there are, in fact, corporations that we have worked with that have done, set internal pollution caps and trading mechanisms inside to do exactly that same kind of... Uh, innovation incentive within their corporate structure. DuPont has reduced its carbon emissions tremendously by using that kind of mechanism. The, the uh, Kyoto uh, Accord was signed by the rest of those who did sign it three, three. years ago? More, more than that. Uh, it was ratified about four years ago, four I years think. Four years ago. Okay. And every industrialized nation except the United States ratified it. We are the last ones. And we are still a holdout? Well, it's now become somewhat moot because we're heading toward the negotiations in Copenhagen at the end of the year, right. where the successor to Kyoto will be negotiated. And it looks pretty clear that this time the United States will not only join but really lead, um, given the, the new administration. What did, what did Mr. Gore add to the dialogue, and what was the relationship between him and the, Envirom and the uh, Environmental Defense Fund? Well, Fred has always had a good personal relationship with Al Gore and, and with John McCain and with lots of people actually in D.C. because he's been at this for a long time. And, right. and John McCain actually was the first advocate 
of a cap and trade in the United States. Um, he was a real leader on that. There have been an, uh, uh, there has been a lot of Republican leadership on that side. What Al Gore really did was allow us to not have to spend any time or to, or to spend very little time telling people what the problem is and instead to go straight to the solutions. And for that, we're the public awareness of the danger of climate change was radically raised by an inconvenient truth. Um, but an inconvenient truth left you kind of gasping for air and thinking we're doomed. And what, what Environmental Defense Fund has always been sort of professionally optimistic. We've always been about believing that you can find a solution. If you, right. if you work across partisan lines and you work with people in corporations and you work with people who actively work the land like ranchers and fishermen, that if you work together that you can figure out constructive solutions Benefit for here. all. Right. Leads to a better solution than sort of a cram down of this is the way you should do it. Absolutely. And Fred was in a position, uh, because he has close ties in Silicon Valley and he globe trots a lot, he was in a position to start hearing these stories about people who were farsighted enough to see that that carbon, a carbon constrained world was inevitable, that we were either gonna destroy the planet or we were gonna rein in carbon, mm -hmm. and that they decided they were gonna bet their fortunes on it. The when, when did the, when did the um, term the carbon footprint and that kind of thing come into vogue? When did it enter the common lexicon? Well, you know, I uh, not for you, Not for you, right. I, I realize that you, you all have been in, have been, hoeing this field for a long time, but I, I'm always interested. I think really so it's the last year. I mean, yeah. an inconvenient truth was really the beginning, but in the last year, people really began to think about, okay, how, how do we figure out how much impact we're, each of us is contributing or each consumption decision we're making is contributing? One of the things we really like about a carbon market is that individuals don't have to try to figure out whether the apple from upstate New York or the apple from Washington State has a smaller carbon footprint. It's a sort of impossible calculation because it depends on 57 inputs of how much fertilizer you put down and whether you plowed the soil and, and whether you trucked it or you flew it. Or you, so so if, you, if, you just, if you get a, a carbon market going so that every bit of carbon that's emitted has a price tag attached to it, the consumer can go and buy the cheapest apple, and that will be the lowest carbon apple. The price of carbon will be built into every commodity so that you can let the price incentive drive people to the lower carbon solution rather than asking people to try to do these really complex calculations of their personal carbon footprint. I, the whole notion of a carbon footprint makes me, I just don't get it. I mean, I sort of do, I guess, intellectually, but is it, is it, what's it akin to? Is it akin to reading on the side, the nutritional statement on the side of a bag of potato chips? That there is a, um, that there is a carbon footprint and, and sort of how concerned, as you said, no, it's built into the price of things. Right, um, well it's not yet, but when it is, it will be a, a much simpler way to reduce carbon because you'll know that right now, to get a lower carbon footprint, you feel like you have to buy the more expensive thing. When carbon is priced, it will be the other way around. So, did, so, did, how's this all gonna work? So, I, I, don't, I don't get it. Okay, so there is a, 
so we get a cap on carbon, and let's let's do it in a very simplified so way. This, so this cap and trade, the cap the cap and trade starting with with uh, a different gas altogether, right? Sulfur dioxide. Sulfur dioxide was the first cap. So and now we have a carbon cap. Well, we, we don't yet. Any, we We're don't. working toward. Have we had? A, is there an, is there an interstitial cap? Have we had something between sulfur and carbon? Uh, there have been caps on other pollutants, but I'm afraid I don't. I think nitrogen oxides may have a cap, and there have been. The idea of a cap has also been used in other contexts. And actually, I'll, let me tell you another one because it might be easier for you to understand. Thank you. In fisheries. Yeah, I was going to say mercury, perhaps, but that well, was. Well, mercury is actually not a good pollutant for cap and trade because mercury is deposited very locally. So you don't want someone with a very high polluting plant to be able to buy extra mercury allowances yeah, okay. because it's, it's it all sits bad. right yeah, in there right, in their backyard. You just need to ban mercury. Okay, forget basically. my mercury comment. But fisheries, swordfish, I know that they, I still don't know whether I feel good or bad about having swordfish, but I don't want to I don't want to ask your opinion on that. All right. Well, let me just get, tell you an example of how a similar mechanism is really effective in fisheries. Okay. So the you know, fisheries are in trouble. We've fished out 90% of those big, beautiful prey fish that we all love to eat are gone. We fished yeah, them out very sad. the tuna and the swordfish. And the, a lot of the, the marine habitats are really damaged. So the people whose job it is to manage fisheries, who are, you know, regu government regulators, have been desperate at, okay, what do we do? These fisheries are all crashing. These poor fishermen are coming in with empty boats. What do we do? And the idea that they depended on was a fishing season. So they would say, okay, they would, you can only fish these six weeks out of the year, and each day you fish, you can only bring in a thousand pounds of cod or right. whatever it is uh -huh. you have a permit. And for. you'd avoid those seasons where there was egg laying and a variety of things. Well, you like would that try to. The problem right. was it didn't work okay. because it, it was bad in in every way almost you can think of. The fishermen, first of all, would have to fish no matter what the weather was, so they would often risk their lives and their boats, and many fishermen lost their lives and their boats because even if it was you know, a horrible typhoon, they would have to go out and fish. They would all go out and fish at once, which means the fresh fish they did bring in would all land on the dock at the same moment, and of course the price per pound would plummet and most of it would get frozen, which also reduces it, its value, and consumers would only get fresh fish for those few weeks out of the year. The fishermen would have to fish pretty recklessly. They had to get make their entire year's income in that season, and sometimes it got as short as a week. So they would basically just rake up everything they could get out of the ocean. They would damage the bottom habitat, which is where all the baby fish hide, and they would kill every kind of fish under the sun, but most of it they would throw back in the water dead because they were only allowed to take a certain kind of fish. So that's called bycatch. So up to 90% of what they were catching and throwing back dead, nobody ever got the benefit of. So it didn't work for anybody. The fishermen were getting poorer, the fisheries were crashing worse. So there's another approach which EDF has really championed called catch shares. Same idea as a cap and trade. You go into a fishery, uh, say the the cod fishery in, in St. George's Banks. In St. George's Banks, and you say, okay, the scientists look at it and they say, okay, we can safely take a thousand tons. We could sustainably take a thousand tons of cod 
out of this fishery every year and still leave enough mama cods and baby cods so that we can do it again next year and the year after. I think it's actually George's Banks. It's not Saints, is it? I don't think it's Saints. No, George's I think it's George's Banks. George's Banks. George's Banks. So then they say to the thousand fishermen that have been working there for generations, okay, you guys each get a ton, uh, your share, uh, you get a secure share of that total fishery. You get your piece of it. You can fish whenever you want, however you want, and, and you are guaranteed that you get to bring in a fraction of a, a secure share of that fishery. Well, everything changes then. The fishermen go out when it works best for them. They fish incredibly carefully, so they don't kill all this unwanted fish, and they don't damage the bottom habitat. Fresh fish comes in year-round, so the consumer benefits, the market price is higher for the fish, and the fisheries begin to rebound because there isn't all this terrible damage being done, this you know, wholesale destruction being done. So it's, we've seen this, the Alaska halibut fishery, the Gulf Red Snapper, or the, uh, I think it's the Gulf Red Snapper, the Pacific, there are some, some uh, cat share programs that are now in place, and it has been remarkably successful in bringing back these fish populations. So again, it's about setting a performance target, allocating an allowance mm -hmm. to each player, and, but allowing them to make the decisions about the best way to function within that. And the, the same thing with cap and trade. If you, if you set a cap on carbon and then you, you issue the allowances, the right to emit a certain amount of carbon, mm -hmm. and there are different ways you can do that. You can sell those allowances or you can give them away. The chances are we'll do a mixture of both the first time around. So now your PG&E and you are allowed to emit a certain number of car of uh, a certain number of tons of carbon every year in the course of making the electricity that you provide to California. Or let's make it Con Edison, since right. we're in New York. So well, you Con Edison. But you know, I, can, can, can you can hold your train of thought. Okay. But I just want to make sure that I did I say who you are again, because I realize okay. we're having such a great conversation okay. that people who who are going <laughs> to click into the middle of this may not recognize me. May recognize me, Paul McLaughlin. Uh, McLaughlin at work here discussing The Earth, the sequel, the book, uh, appeared last night on Discovery Channel. I'm speaking with Miriam Horn, who is uh, the co-author with uh, Fred Krupp, who is the president of the Environmental Defense Fund. And we're really getting um, a primer. Uh, I am getting a primer on Earth, the sequel, talking about what we are going to do about our energy needs, which are, and I'll get into that as a question of whether they're expanding um, or whether that's one of the things we're addressing is using less energy, but uh, the development of new sources of energy that both uh, benefit the economy, benefit the environment, and I guess somewhere between that, there are the people who are engaged in the economy and the environment, so everybody makes a living uh, without being punitive. But right. Miriam, continue. Okay, so you're Con Edison, and you've now been told that every year you have the right to emit X amount of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, and mm -hmm. that that limit is going to decline over time, because by 2050, we need to get rid of 80% of our carbon emissions. Of the, we need to reduce them by 80%. So you're Con Edison, so now you have a choice. That's all you've been told. That's your target. So now you have a choice of how to go about reducing your carbon footprint. That's what your footprint is, is how much carbon are you responsible for being added to the atmosphere. So Con Edison, the, for most utilities, the first cheapest thing that they can do to reduce 
the amount of carbon that they're responsible for adding to the atmosphere is improve the way we use energy. So Con Edison can go out and finance a lot of efficiency improvements in their customers' homes and businesses. They can put in better insulation, they can put in better windows, they can put in more efficient appliances, more efficient lighting. Uh, heating and cooling is a huge electricity hog, so that's a, a good place to target it. The, all of the things that make up the building envelope, as they call it, mm -hmm. are a really good target. And that's where M the McKinsey Group did a, a study looking at the cost per ton to reduce carbon, and efficiency virtually always wins, just making better use of the electricity we already have. And that doesn't mean shivering in the dark. No. It means just not throwing it away. And you know, these people will all, they'll be operating as at, in, the great, in the same comfort and at the same high levels of efficiency, but they just won't be wasting as much. And so there's a lot of people who are now investing in and innovating new efficiency technologies. And I would interject, if I may, that it, it came as a surprise, but in reflecting on it, it was obvious that cities like New York are really quite energy efficient per person that they that we move in the subways and our buses and how we live stacked up on top of each other in very Absolutely. small little places. You have we are we're pretty green. Unless you fly a lot, which tends to sink a lot of people's carbon footprint. You, if you live in New York City, you have the smallest carbon footprint of anyone in the United States. Hmm. For all those reasons that you talked about, we share heat in these big buildings, and public transportation is a giant boon for the environment. And so, yes, it's true. And we true walk a lot. And we walk a lot. So uh, cities are in, can be very efficient energy users in right. that sense. And can be made more so, as we know from yes. Con Edison. So that's not a comment that, hey, we're fine, the rest of America get on board. We too can have some dramatic impacts. Absolutely, and I've been meeting a lot of companies. I mean, you and I have been talking so far a lot about policy, and in fact, I should just make clear that Earth the Sequel doesn't spend that much time on policy. It's mostly about these amazing innovations. Right, that and, we'll, and we'll talk about people those. Are and then that. Was, okay. Then that was what when I opened, I said, you were cut short. You were cut short because the explanations actually were quite lengthy about some of the aspects of the book that found their way onto the Discovery Channel. So here we're giving the other side of it, okay. but I'd like to have some of those examples. I, I thought they were fascinating. I'll just give the one that I thought particularly so, because it never occurred to me that there were turbine engines in the East River. Uh, nobody had brought that to my attention. I hadn't seen it anywhere in the paper uh, or any of the local news. Uh, it didn't seem to make much of a splash, and it came to me as a complete surprise. Well, getting back to Con Ed, there's another option that Con Ed has. Con Edison can decide, okay, well, we're going to use generating equipment. We're going to buy our power from people that themselves produce less carbon or no carbon. So. The most carbon-intensive way to make electricity is to burn coal in a conventional coal plant. So Con, Con Edison can decide, okay, well, we're going to buy less coal-fired power, and we're going to buy more power made from natural gas, which is still a fossil fuel but is a much cleaner one. Or better yet, we're going to buy power from Verdant Energy, which is the company you just mentioned, that has developed a kind of underwater windmill that you put into, that they've got in the East River. The East River is not actually a river, it's a tidal estuary, so that you have a very predictable 
flow when the tide comes in and an equally predictable flow when the tide goes out. And so they've designed their turbines so that the turbines actually turn themselves around each time the tide shifts so that they're producing electricity 24 hours a day and they're actually powering some buildings on Roosevelt Island. There are... No, I, I want to stop here because we've got a global audience. I want to point out two things. Roosevelt Island is an island between, uh, in Manhattan, between, actually is an island in the midst of the East River, served by a tramway, which seems to break all the time. <laughs> but um, for those who are much more aware of geography because of the U.S. Air plane, which landed on the Hudson, the East River um, is on the other side of Manhattan from uh, the Hudson River. And the Hudson River is, in fact, a river. Uh, and the East River... Uh, referred to as, uh, and as Miriam Horm did appropriately refer as, an, as an est a tidal estuary, it basically funnels the water from the ocean out to, uh, among other places, Long Island Sound, and then the other way around. So it's, it's predictable, as I said, for the next 50 years, you know, you know right. or 200 years, you know exactly when the tide's going to change and how the turbines uh, can go back and forth. But that, that's just a geography lesson for people who really uh, know where the Hudson River is, but don't really realize where the East River is. Right. So the whole world of marine energy is one of the chapters in, in the book is focused on all the ways that people are trying to tap the energy of the oceans and the tides. One of the great things about marine energy is that unlike solar energy or wind energy, it is extremely predictable. It's also very, the water is very dense, so the energy per square meter is potentially greater if you're tapping an, a wave resource or a tidal resource. We talk about um, another company in the book, and there are a number of them that are working on, on technologies that, you, that convert the kinetic energy of wave motion. The kinetic energy is what? is just is the energy of motion okay so like a, if a, when a wave goes up and a wave goes down you there is energy that's energy and energy can be converted mm -hmm. from kinetic energy into electrical energy mm -hmm. so for instance the company we talk about puts a buoy out there that has a hose pump on the bottom a pretty old-fashioned technology it's just a big hose that gets stretched and when it's stretched what's ever inside it gets pressurized so as the boy goes up it stretches the hose and it pressurizes water and because the there's a, a piston inside that the hose is attached to so it gets stretched the pressurizes water and that spins a turbine and you have electricity right there's to, to, to a, a simple example also of that is the buoys that people have heard referred to as whistles literally trap air from the motion into under a wave and then when the water comes up through the hole forces the air up and creates the sound which is the uh -huh. buoy whistle it was uh, and, and i'm a, a sailor and have and, and, uh, and have sailed around the world a few uh, in various places around the world it was it the statistic that you just gave but in a different ways that water you can't compress water it's one of the few things that what is the problem of a tsunami is that water, when it comes ashore, mm. has more energy but is not mm. compressed at all. So mm -hmm. a cubic foot of water in motion is a very heavy and potentially extraordinarily dangerous force when it comes mm. on shore. Mm -hmm. didn't realize that so much until talking about when tsunami and water comes oh. ashore. Well, the other great thing about wave energy is that the 
the U.S. population is heavily concentrated on the coasts, and the wave energy resource on the Pacific coast is particularly good because you've got bigger waves out there, and so there's a lot of effort, uh, some of it led, in fact, by Pacific Gas and Electric, that uh, to convert that wave energy and also the tides that come in under the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco to convert that into electricity. So that's one whole realm of innovation. As in many of these technologies, the Europeans are actually ahead of us on wave energy. They have a great wave resource on the British Isles and, the, and Portugal and Spain. They also signed that carbon cap ahead of us, and they put in a lot of other carbon legislation. They created a European Union trading system for carbon, and all of that has served to really drive innovation in, in marine energy and also in solar energy. And so at the moment, the United States is in a position of needing to catch up. A lot is, of the is that, is that in part because we have been blessed with such a large country with so many resources that we could, the, we felt in the past that we could uh, uh, literally afford to squander them. We didn't think of the fact that we would be without because we seem to have be a land of such plenty. Well, I think in, a, in the deepest or broadest sense, that's probably true. There was always this frontier idea that you could just go over the horizon and there would be more to exploit. We have felt our dependence on oil for, you know, the 70s or I, I was around to experience the first oil shocks in the 70s. Every generation or so, we get really yeah. thwacked with just how vulnerable we are to that, you know, we don't have a lot of oil. We could, we could mine every bit of oil we have in the, in the country, and it would only s satisfy a percent or two right. of our needs. Right. So I remember in the, in, the, uh, in the political debate that when McCain's offshore drilling request came in, one of the statistics, and I'm leery of all these kinds of statistics, but I think that they said if they tapped every resource, it would be exhausted in something like eight or ten years, right. and it's it wouldn't have made but a, literally an oil drop in the bucket of what our absolutely. long-term needs are. We, are. we do have huge amounts of coal, but coal is a high-cost resource. It's costly to my, in, in, from an environmental standpoint and a health standpoint. It's it's very destructive to landscapes to mine coal. It's very dangerous for the workers, both because they can get crushed in the mine and because it's really dangerous to their health. And coal releases lots of pollutants, a lot of health-compromising pollutants in addition to carbon dioxide. So we do devote a chapter to coal and to the efforts that are being made by companies like General Electric and Alstom to figure out ways to actually capture not only the sulfur dioxide, which they've been doing since that 1990 Clean Air Act, but also to actually capture the carbon dioxide out of the smokestack and bury it back in the ground. That's called carbon capture and sequestration. And there's a lot of effort. The oil companies have actually been doing that for a long time because it turns out if you pump carbon dioxide into a an uh, oil well that's starting to slow down in production, you can push out a lot more oil. So they've been piping CO2 into the ground for a long time, and mm -hmm. it, seems to, it seems to work. There's a tremendous amount of research that needs to be done that hasn't, it hasn't been funded because there hasn't been that magic incentive we keep returning to. There's right. been no reason for people because there was no cost to dumping the carbon into the atmosphere. It would have appeared, however, uh, two observations both of which I'm sure are not true. One is that if you collected them all together, 
they didn't seem to make much of a dent. And I see here that in the back of the book, and I'm, and I'm reading um, the, uh, from Harvard Business Review, if you're worried that the world is heading toward climatic catastrophe, here's a book, and the book is Earth, the Sequel, speaking with Miriam Horn, a co-author of it, that this, here's a book to lift your spirits. If only one quarter of the projects were to reach commercial scale, the planet would have a bright future. Um, the percentage of energy that is now provided by oil, by, by coal in America, is quite staggering, isn't 50, it? Half of our energy comes from coal. Right. So all of this debate, without minimizing the importance of what, and I don't want to call them environmentalists, if, if you will. I want to call it people who are concerned about new energy sources. If all of those things really happened, aren't we just delaying the inevitable? I mean, could we oh, really no. turn this around? Yes, absolutely. I, mean, I, Texas, I want to hear a little vim and vigor into that because I want to be converted. I want to know that what I'm doing is going to make a difference. Okay, well, it, you are absolutely right that until now, things like solar energy have made a minuscule fraction of our electricity or of our power overall. The potential for solar energy, however, is enormous. Everyone's favorite statistic, which is absolutely true, is that if you put one of the, the we devote a chapter to something called solar thermal electricity, which is pretty low tech. You put a bunch of mirrors out in the desert, you focus the sun's heat onto a steam pipe, you make steam and you drive a turbine. It's just like burning coal to make steam, but you're using the sun's heat instead of burning coal to make your steam to drive your power plant. If you, put, if you took a, a square of Nevada 100 miles on a side and put solar power plants out there, you could produce enough electricity to power the entire United States. A, hun a square 100 a square, square miles? Uh, uh, well, no, it's a square 100 miles on a side. So 100 by 100, which is okay. different. 100 square miles is 10 by 10. Well, okay. A square 100 by 100, right. which still is a pretty, you look at it, put it on a map. Yeah, it's when a, you're flying over Nevada. It's a little Yeah, spec. you and I sitting here in Manhattan. Right. That would, that would clearly cover Manhattan. Yes, but, <laughs> but, you know, and you can break it up and you can spread uh, it in it. the Mojave, okay. the Sonoran you. Desert. Yep. Yep. But that's all the land you need. If you harvest solar energy at 10% efficiency, which we can do right now, that means 10% of the sunlight, the energy in the sun gets converted to electricity. You could power the, the entire United States. So don't put it out in the desert. Put it on all the rooftops in America. Now, is, is, that, is that, that statistic, does that include the issues of transmission and storage? Those are excellent questions, both of them. Transmission is a big challenge, and you've probably seen a lot of talk about it, led by our new Secretary of Energy, Steve Chu. The, um, there are not transmission lines where we need them to access. Our, the, the beauty of the United States, if you want to talk about abundant natural resources, the United States has some of the greatest renewable energy resources of any country in the world. We have that great marine resource I talked about in the Pacific. We have a world-class solar resource in the Southwest, a huge part of the Southwest has one of the greatest solar resources in the entire world. That, it's really that, is, that is owned by the, and owned by the government. Most I mean, of, it a is, lot of it is, is Bureau of Land Management yeah. land. Or, or Indian Affairs yes. or something like that. So, and we have great geothermal resources. We have another chapter about geothermal energy using the heat in the earth. We have a fabulous geothermal resource in Alaska and in, and in California and a, lot, and a lot through the Rocky Mountains. Uh, and we have a great biomass resource for converting into liquid fuels. The, you mentioned the company that's using the waste product 
when you squeeze the sugar out of sugar cane in mm -hmm. Louisiana, you can convert that waste product into gasoline and not and not compromise the food supply and not depend on imported petroleum. So we have more than enough resources. Texas is already up to making a fifth of its electricity from wind. Texas has been the great leader on renewable resource development here and have have demonstrated that you can really begin to power significant portions of the economy very quickly with carbon-free electricity. But as you mentioned, transmission, if you make the energy, if you make this power in these concentrated power plants, these big which are removed from population Right, sources. then you have to move that electricity. Got to get it, so move it along. So that's got to only be part of the solution. The other part of the solution is to do what's called distributed generation, where you start to put solar, where in places where there's a good solar resource, which is basically most of the, the western and southwestern United States, and even parts of the eastern United States, if you, you start putting solar panels on all of those rooftops, you are producing a tremendous amount of electricity. You're also turning all of us who are now merely consumers, you're turning us all into energy producers. And we all, it's like the era of YouTube, come to electricity. We can all start to produce electricity. And we're actually working on a project in Austin right now where we're working to create that kind, major, large-scale distributed generation where each little house becomes its own power plant and potentially sells electricity, where you could start making money by selling the electricity that you're making on your roof. So you're absolutely right that transmission is an issue. You mentioned storage. That's the other critical piece of the puzzle because the sun goes down and the wind dies down. And so a huge amount of work is being done to try to improve batteries and also to develop other kinds of storage systems. One of my favorite subjects that I never get to discuss with anybody nearly as knowledgeable and intelligent as yourself, one is organic food. Can we talk about organic food in a minute? Is that, is that part of what you guys do? Uh, there are people at Environmental Defense Fund that work on organic food. But, but, is, it, but is Earth the sequel, does that, does that deal with organic food? The only way that we deal with farming, because Earth the Sequel is really focused on climate solutions. Climate solutions, so it's okay. really, and, but there is an important way that farming intersects with, cli that, with climate. But I don't want to go off there if that's not your, if you want to mention it, go ahead. Okay, well, farmers ha can farm in ways that, that dramatically reduce their contribution to carbon emissions. If, if they move to something called no-till, where they don't plow the soil as much, and if they reduce which no-till allows them to do if they reduce the application of things like nitrogen fertilizers, which cause other, there are 20 different greenhouse gases, and a lot of those fertilizers are themselves okay. greenhouse gases. So, and organic food does have, in general, does have a lower carbon footprint. Than, okay. But I'm very, I'm afraid I'm very climate-centric because okay, I really that's good. work on that's energy. Good because I, because I, th that wasn't my, my, my bug. Tell me about batteries. Why do we not, it seems to me that everybody uses them, they are ugly, they wear out too quickly. Where is, why, why is there not innovation along all the lines you're talking about? I don't think it was mentioned on the show last night, it maybe no. it was tangential, but you know, we're talking about the, the Volt and, and other electric cars and people say, well, you still gotta produce the electricity. Tell me about batteries. Well, batteries, as you rightly say, have been an area of where of great cumbersome 
technologies that have not moved very fast for a very long time, and people have been promising battery breakthroughs for a very long time without I've invested succeeding. in some of them. Oh, you have? <laughs> <laughs> they there, haven't, that, that horse has not come into the barn yet. Well, and there are people who still think it never will. There are people who still think that ultimately this whole push for electric cars is never going to really pan out because they don't think we'll ever be able to make batteries that are good enough and that we really, therefore, need to, to work harder on liquid fuels. Okay. But, but there are believers that we are on the brink, that we are, we've already made big progress in batteries. And if you look at the Tesla, which you did see last night, yes, this beautiful electric sports car, that they pack in dozens and dozens of lithium-ion batteries like the kind that power your cell phone and your beautiful laptop sitting there. So they've decided, okay, well, that's right now, that's state-of-the-art for batteries, so we're just going to pile a ton of them up until we get enough juice right. to and power Right, and about car. 110 grand a, a pop yes. for the Tesla or yes. something. Yes, so that's, off the, by a that's bit, the problem I know with piling <laughs> up all those lithium-ion batteries is it costs a fortune. Yeah. And they, they have other dangers. So there are a lot of people trying to crack this nut. Most of them, unfortunately, are not in the United States. We are not a leader on battery technology. And right. you will hear from a lot of people that, in part, that's a failure of the education system, that we don't have the kinds of engineering programs that we need to be producing people. to. And it's partly because Japan, in particular, has been a real leader on right. battery technologies. And they have been. So there are people who say, OK, well, if we move to electric cars, we want to make sure that we don't go from importing foreign oil to importing foreign batteries. We need to really work on batteries here. And there are some companies doing it, but it's an area that is begging for more investment. And a lot of people are scared of it because, like you, they've, they've believed in breakthroughs for decades and they just haven't been forthcoming. Right. I mean, I think we, we, if I may not have the term correctly, but I think the last one was going from alkaline to lithium. And that, in large measure, represents the quantum leap. Right. Yeah, I knew there were others. I'm not, right. I'm not minimizing I mean, it. The, but in terms the area of that will probably provide the big breakthroughs is nanotechnology. The, all the, the breakthroughs that people are making and working on engineering at the atomic scale. One of my favorite characters in the book, she did not make it into the, the TV show. but The book a, is what we're talking about here, though. Okay. The, the, the TV show. Now, will the TV show be shown again? Yes. I think you can watch it on the discovery.com oh, yeah. sure. site. So there is a scientist at MIT, Angela Belcher, who has been working on batteries. And the way she makes batteries, some of these, one of the really cool things that these energy innovators do is use biology in whole new ways. Use organisms in whole new ways, or use the model, use models from biology. Because, you know, there's a lot of brilliant invention out there. So what Angela Belcher has done has re-engineered viruses Viruses generally don't like metals. Metals are toxic to them. But she has re-engineered viruses so that they will coat themselves in conductive metals, and then they will array themselves into these very neat arrangements that are so efficient that they exceed, by many orders of magnitude, the ability of any human engineer to create that density okay. in any material. So these viruses line themselves up into the most efficient batteries anyone has ever created by tenfold or a hundredfold. And we call them little Oompa Loompas, like in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. I like they, that. And so she has now successfully made an entire battery. There's often the, you know, the next stage is figuring out how to do this at scale. That's right. never an easy valley to cross. But 
there are a lot of, there's, there are a number of battery companies that are starting to do some really, really interesting things. There's a company called Altair Nanotechnologies, another one called A123 Systems, right. that they might finally be the ones that make this, this breakthrough that we've all been waiting for. And it's a really critical one. There, there are other ways to store electricity. You can store, or to store energy, you can store it as heat. That's one thing that the solar thermal companies are doing. You can compress air. A lot of wind companies are looking at running a compressor and, and pushing that air underground, and then when you need the electricity, you release the air and drive the turbine that way. You can pump water back up to the top of a dam, and when you need the electricity, let it run through the turbines again. So there are other storage technologies, but batteries would make yeah. a huge difference in the world. Is the Environmental Defense Fund and Miriam Horn and Fred Krupp, are you hopeful? We are. We are going to make it. I mean, partly because we have this kind of capacity for innovation that is so extraordinary, partly because there are a lot of people who have already made huge financial bets on this, like the, the venture capitalists out in Silicon Valley, many of whom have shifted enormous fractions of their resources from the old high tech to the, this new technology boom. And partly because we do have a lot of enlightened leaders in Washington right now that really get this. We have a committed Congress and we have a committed White House. We, have, we were thrilled with the appointments that Obama made to EPA and with Secretary Chu. It's to have a Nobel Prize winning scientist there. So we are going to make it. We can't, we're not complacent. We're all working harder. I'm certainly working harder than I've ever worked in my life because we are also acutely aware of just how fast our climate is changing. Everything we hear from the scientists is, is really worse by the month. I mean, the clock, we, we do not have any time to waste. So we are working as hard as we can to make sure this happens in time. But if we really summon the will that seems to be coming together, we're going to make it. Thank you. Miriam Horn, my guest on McLaughlin at Work here today, The Earth, The Sequel. The Race to Reinvent Energy and Stop Global Warming with her co-author, Fred Krupp, president of the Environmental Defense Fund. Book is available in paperback and the program will be aired regularly on the Discovery Channel. Thank you, Miriam. My pleasure. Thank you. Paul McLaughlin, McLaughlin at Work, your audio guide to the workplace, bringing you the best of management, leadership, the economy, Earth, the sequel. Next week, Another great episode starring Andy Nullman. Andy has been making people gasp and leaving them pop-eyed and opened mouth for decades. He's written a book, not surprising, POW, Right Between the Eyes, Profiting from the Power of Surprise. Very interesting read, very interesting concept. We've had a few notions few folks aboard teaching us the power of, the power of nice, the power of short, the power of small, here the power of surprise. You'll want to listen to Andy Nolman next week because he's got some interesting things to say and some interesting ways of saying them. That's all next week on McLaughlin at Work. Don't forget, give a look at Classroom 24-7. There are sponsor here on McLaughlin at Work. Innovative on-demand distributed education solutions. 
designed for specifically for institutions of higher learning, continuing education, and cert certification testing. I always have trouble saying certification. I don't know why that is. Some words just don't trip. Others do. McLaughlin at work is certainly one of them. Wouldn't have a show without you. And thanks so much for joining me again this week. Look forward to your participation next week. Classroom 24-7, McLaughlin at Work, The Earth, The Sequel. And next week, Andy Nolman, pow, right between the eyes, profiting from the power of surprise. You can do it too. Just listen in to McLaughlin at Work. Next week. <laughs>